The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. How are you guys doing? All right, everybody spry. You, you all thawed out from the, the winter freeze we had here a couple of weeks ago. Wasn't that awesome? That was absolutely beautiful. I, I'm like, keep it coming. I want like four feet of snow and... I think it would be awesome. I know, it's not a popular view, but it's mine. Um, Hey, real quick, we uh, have been giving away some books, and this morning I've got a a great one for you. Uh, This is called Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's by Ted Tripp, Ted Tripp, and um, it's probably, I think, one of the, uh, the best parenting books that's out there, and I'll I'll tell you why. A lot of what we do as parents is like, uh, you know, moral management, right? You're like, Bobby, don't hit your sister. That's bad, right? And, you know, go stick your nose in the corner, that kind of a thing. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't actually teach our kids how to become disciples of Jesus. It teaches them right and wrong, and, and that part is good. But it, it's insufficient because right and wrong isn't what we want for our kids. What we want is our kids to live in a Godward manner, right? So uh, Ted Tripp here, he offers this book, Shepherding the Child's Heart, and it talks about how to, through parenting, lead your child continuously to their need for the gospel, for an examination of what is happening in the heart. So you can say next time, hey, uh, Bobby, what was going on in your heart when you hit your sister? What was happening there? So how, how should we depend on Jesus in those moments? Hey, let me tell you some stories out of mom and dad's life or out of the scriptures that show us how we handle our hearts when we feel those feelings coming up within us. And so fantastic parenting tool. Don't miss it. I'm going to put one over here on this communion table and one over here on this communion table, and then you guys can fight over them. Excellent. A couple of quick announcements. See, now you can tell who all the problem kids are, huh? Right? What, what parents come forward. They're like, oh, I'm going to need that one. A um, couple of quick announcements before we get started here. Uh, this week, we have three women's Bible studies that are starting. So uh, the ladies' online Bible study starts up the 9th. Uh, made his... This coming Thursday, January 12th, at the Hub, um, anchored in the Word through the book of James, starts up January 17th, so that one's a, uh, a couple of weeks away. But ladies, um, if you want to get plugged in with another group of gals, gals that love Jesus, and they're fighting it out just like you, they're struggling just like you are, and, and you want to grab a hold of the truths of Scripture and say, okay, so what does this mean for us? And wrestle with it together. Man, I encourage you, become a part of these ministries. Become a part of these Bible studies. I'm not saying you have to hit every single one, but find an avenue where you can integrate your life with the lives of other women and really begin to connect and be discipled through uh, the fellowship with one another. Second announcement, Financial Peace University. Is Brent in here? Brent? Yeah? 
Hey, just real quick, would you give us a rundown? Do you remember how many thousands of dollars of debt were canceled out uh, through Financial Peace University la just the last time that we did it? 36,000. Okay, $36,000 in debt were, were gotten rid of through people at Heritage. This is just our church. And it was a handful of people. What, eight families? Yeah, about eight families. So between eight families, $36,000 of debt were paid off just in the, the time that they were taking that class, Financial Peace University. So that, that's incredible. And if you're a person, you go, man, uh, maybe you're, you were never taught uh, financial practices or you've wrestled with debt off and on, I just want to encourage you, this is a fantastic tool in your hands to not let money be a controlling factor in your life. And there's some real practical tools. Pastor Brent will be at the info table after the service is over. And if you want to ask questions, Brent, could you stand up and show us your, your beautiful face? Excellent. He's going to be there at the info table. Um, and if you have questions about Financial Peace University, please feel free to hit him up. You can go online and sign up. The cost is $93. Um, so for those of you who are like, I'm in debt. <laughs> Why are you going to have me pay $93 to take this class? I'm just going to tell you that $36,000 in savings was the result of taking the class. So it far outweighs what you invest. All that is is just paying for the materials for you to be able to take that stuff, those resources, home with you. Uh, so we're not making, it's not a money scheme. We're not a, you know, televangelist church trying to make some score. Um, so make sure that you uh, get signed up online. It starts out every Monday from 6 to 8. Those are those classes between January 9th and March 6th. So it's a, it's a three-month commitment there. Um, last, uh, no, not last, second to last. The Veterans Ministry is going to be starting up. Uh, that happens this Saturday, Saturday, January 14th from 9 to 1030 at the Hub. All veterans are welcome, uh, so join us for this kickoff event. If you have any questions, please call Terry Haynes, and that information should be available to you in the bulletin. Last but certainly not least is in between uh, or after the service is over today, we're having another pastor's coffee event. That's for people who have been coming to Heritage and have never really met the pastoral staff or the leadership, or, or maybe you, you, you're, you're just trying this out for the first time. And you're trying to figure out, like, how does this church work? And how do I get to become a part of it? Um, the pastor's coffee today, after the service in Holy Joe's, is a way for you to get the answers to your questions and to kind of hear the heartbeat of what heritage is all about. Okay, so there's our announcements for today. Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And we'll be hopefully finishing that chapter today. Pastor Jeff is away with some guys and got stranded in the snow, and so he'll be back a little bit later this afternoon, um, and I get to pinch hit. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm the high school pastor here, and it, it's my pleasure and my joy to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, there are so many lives that are represented in this room. Each comes with their own story, uh, their own background. And, and today, as they've come in, each comes with their own set of thoughts, 
burdens, joys, sorrows, life experiences, things that have shaped them. And the expectation, God, that somehow I would be able to, uh, to minister to every need in here is, is ridiculous. But Lord, you, by your Spirit, can breathe life into your word. You can, you can speak to your people and encourage their hearts. And so, Father, would you give us ears to hear? God, would you give us a heart that is tilled up and ready to see, receive the implanted word deep within us? Lord, we want to bear fruit for your glory. We want our lives to be marked for your glory. So, God, change us with the truth. Shape us with your word. We submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures, to the working of your Holy Spirit. And God, we ask that you would speak to your people in the name of Jesus and for Jesus' glory. Amen. So we've been studying through the book of Colossians with Pastor Jeff for a while now. Slowly, we've made our way through the first chapter and have waded into the deep waters of this really incredible hymn or a, or a song that Paul writes uh, in the book of Colossians of, that is focused on the preeminence of Christ. Now, this, this poem is found from verses 15 to verses 23, and so far it's been a fantastic journey as we've really taken time to chew on to meditate on the incredible truths that it holds for us. Paul tells us with exquisite clarity that Jesus is preeminent in all things. Now he gives us three different arenas that demonstrate Christ's preeminent authority. Three different arenas that demonstrate his preeminent authority. So Jesus is preeminent in his, first of all, in his universal authority. Verses 15 through 17. Let's read what it says there. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So we see in here that Jesus is preeminent in his universal authority. Jesus is the exact image of God. He made everything for his purpose. And his firstborn status, that's not that he's the, the first one to be created. The idea is that, that he's the one who has all of the authority, like the firstborn in a, in a Roman household or a Hebrew household. Okay? His firstborn status over all that exists is exemplified in this passage. So he has universal authority. He made everything. It all belongs to him. He does what he wants with it. And even right now, everything that exists is being held together by the power of Jesus Christ. Not only does he, is he preeminent in his universal authority, but he's also preeminent in kingdom authority. 
verses 18 through 20. Let's look at what it says. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell or be at home. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. The word peace there is a, is a hint towards the Hebrew word shalom, even though it's a, a Greek text. Hinting at the God's peaceful planet that has been completely restored by him. He says, by the blood of his cross, he is, whether those things are in heaven or on earth, he is making peace, making shalom by the blood of his cross. That is, he has kingdom authority. Jesus is reconciling. Okay, reconciling means um, there was a separation that took place at some point. Between God and all, everything that he made, there was a distancing that took place in creation. But Jesus is reconciling everything back from its fallen and rebellious state and bringing it under his rule to restore shalom. And the cross was the first step in all that he has planned to do. Okay? So he has kingdom authority. He is healing the broken world. It belongs to him. He's restoring it. And what has been separated from him is being brought back to him. It's being redeemed. It's being reconciled. And thirdly, we see in this poem his personal authority, verses 21 through 23. And now he talks specifically to the church. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Lastly, we see that Jesus is preeminent in his personal authority in the life of a believer. Jesus is not only reconciling all that, the things that he has made in terms of the physical universe, but he is specifically redeeming specific people. He is specifically grabbing people and making them a part of his kingdom. And those that embrace that are becoming his in a way that they have previously not been. They are being brought together again with the Lord. Reconciled. So he has universal authority. He has kingdom authority. He has personal authority. Now this clearly tells us that Jesus is the one who had the first say and ultimately will have the last say nothing nothing and no one exists beyond his authority nothing and no one exists beyond his authority now 
that should be terrifying for all of us. I mean, doesn't it, think about that kind of power. The one who holds the molecules together has the ability to redeem planets, to raise the dead, to heal what is broken. That kind of power is, is a scary prospect. I mean, if you put that kind of power into the hands of the average person, you don't know whether or not you even matter to them. In the grand scheme of their plan, what are you? You may just be a pawn in the hands of some evil overlord who owns everything and has the last say. But Paul tells us that the end game of all that Jesus is doing and is yet to do is for the express purpose of reconciling all things and all people to himself. That's his goal. Verse 20 tells us that he is reconciling all things on earth or in heaven unto himself. Then verse 22 says that he has also reconciled us to himself. This means that the the main motivation behind God and all that he has done and all that he is doing through the gospel is to unite everything that has been separated from him back to himself. Now, Now, how does he accomplish this? Well, the text tells us in verse 20 and 22. He did it through his death in order to present you blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus' death on the cross is about mending things. It's about repairing things. John puts it this way. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? I think we all, hopefully, all of us memorized that when we were little, little kids. Although that's something that is, is fading out. That's not a, as normal as it used to be at one time. John 3.16, let's quote it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Excellent, excellent. Good job. Does anybody know what verse 17 says? Next verse. I, I heard it over here. Excellent, good job, guys. Let, let, me, let me read it to you. Ready? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Isn't that an amazing truth? The purpose of Jesus' arrival is salvation. Restoration, redemption, reconciliation. Now this message that God is reconciling or saving the world through his son has often been encapsulated by a singular word. That word is gospel. Now Paul uses that word in verse 23. Did you see it? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The word itself has been defined as good news because it was a proclamation of something that had happened. It is the telling of God's story and how he is redeeming everything. Now, good news. Now, think about that. Good news. Not good 
views, not good perspectives, not hopeful views, good news. Okay, what is news? 9-11 is news, right? It's an event. We were all, lots of us, not all of us, okay, many of us remember that moment, right? When the Twin Towers hit. Many of us recall that as hit a historical event. It was news. It was something that had happened. Now when the writers of the New Testament grab a hold of this idea of good news, of gospel, they're saying something about the message itself. This is an event that took place that changes things. It's a good event. Here was the earth. The earth and everything in it is plummeting perilously to its own destruction. But God intervened. Good news. An event happened. God stopped the free fall of the planet as it's plummeting to the, to the pit. He intervenes and he stops that free fall and he says, now I'm reconciling. You were perishing. I am reconciling now the world unto myself. Sin has broken it. Death has entered in. This world has been ruined in so many ways, even in all of its glory and all of the beauty that it has now. It's only a fragment of what I had planned. And I have intervened that I might reconcile once again this world unto myself. It's an event that happened. Now, Paul will now go on to say a few things about how this message is working both in his life and also in the world as he shares it. And as he gives us perspective on his life and his experiences, there's a few things that I want us to chew on and take note of this morning. So four things. For those of you who are note takers, I've got four things that I want you to kind of keep um, and, and take down. Hey, by the way, I'm not calling you unspiritual if you don't take notes, but I, I really think it's an essential part of our growth as disciples. It is. Uh, I, can, I have listened to literally thousands of upon thousands of sermons. You know what I learn from? What I write down. That's just the truth. What I write down helps, it helps me to retain it. Matter of fact, I've got a special pencil. It's like a .3 lead. It's super, super fine. If you open up my Bible, you'll see little tiny microscopic chicken scratch because I'm trying to preserve all the space that I can in the margins, you know, and I, and I write, my Bible is full of markings. I've gone through probably four Bibles since I've gotten saved, and they're all marked up and highlighted and, and tattered, and the pages are torn. I've got one I was reading last night that you know, I remember when my kids were sitting on my lap as little babies, and, you know, I'm writing notes, and my daughter just grabbed a page and just ripped it right out of the Bible, you know. <clears throat> And I'm, so I, there's tape in there, you know, and your Bible should look beat up. It should be used. And, okay, and some of you are like, no, I really love this book. I want to preserve it, keep it. Excellent. Grab a journal. Beat up a journal. Thrash a journal. Have arrows pointing everywhere and highlights and stars bursting around stuff. And you know, 
Take the truth of God's word and own it for yourself. Own it. I mean, do you know how many thousands of lives that Jesus said, you go and die for this word to preserve it for my people in the future? The honor, the privilege of reading God's word, of writing down the things that God has said to us is so immense. We can't even calculate the cost of having this book in our presence right now to be able to hear it. So I I encourage you, take it seriously. Grab a hold of the words of God. Write it down for yourself. Now, side note. Over. Done. Rant. Done. So there are four things we want to take note of. Paul's example in verse 24. Paul's example in gospel ministry. Second of all, verses 25 through 26, Paul's explanation of the gospel mystery. Paul's explanation of the gospel mystery. Verse 27, our experience in the gospel personally. And verse 28, the expectation of the gospel is maturity. So number one, Paul's example in the gospel ministry. Let's read it, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, yeah, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in prison. And I'm writing this letter from prison. And, you know, I've taken a few beatings along the way to get here. I'm so stoked about it. I rejoice in it. I think it's awesome that I've landed here. Praise God for it. That seems weird to us, doesn't it? I rejoice in my sufferings. I mean, if you have somebody around you who's doing something stupid that gets them in a lot of trouble and lands them in jail, don't you tell them, stop doing that. It's stupid. But Paul, he's like, man, I I rejoice that I'm here. I'm excited that I'm here. Now, I can remember uh, the first teaching that I had in the school of ministry. When I was uh, 19 years, no, 20 years old, um, I signed up to be a part of the school of ministry at Applegate Christian Fellowship. It was kind of a, a Bible school. Think of it like a trade school for young people that want to like grow in the Lord. <clears throat> and so uh, I signed up to be a part of this, and I was only a couple years old in the Lord. I'd only been saved for a couple of years. And uh, so we end up at this mountaintop retreat center. It's this beautiful, gorgeous view on the top of this mountain, big bay windows. Like, if you want to worship Jesus, like, that's a place that you automatically are like, man, God is awesome. Look at this. It's beautiful. This view is just majestic. And so we're up there, and I'm, I'm like this kid, only a couple years old in the Lord, have no idea what I'm signing up for. It's me and 36 other guys that are about to live in a three-bedroom house together. And I'm there, and, and Jim Wright, who at the time was the director of the school of ministry, he was the pastor leading that, he comes in and he opens up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he just says, let's read. So he opens up and he begins to read. And as he reads, he's like, you know, I spent a day and a night floating around in the ocean. 
Um, I, I've been beaten with rods a bunch of times. Uh, I've been whipped a bunch of times. That happened. You know, they brought me almost to the point of death quite a few times. And I, they tried to kill me with rocks one time. And uh, yeah, That's right. Pretty much everybody's tried to kill me. I mean, everywhere I go, people are trying to kill me. And then on top of that, every day, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Every day I wake up and I'm, just, I'm, I'm consumed with caring for the church. I, I just think, oh, God, preserve them, protect them. God, continue to use them. Lord, give these guys over here boldness. Lord, we were only there for two weeks, but you established something by your Holy Spirit. Don't let the enemy take it away. Don't let him rip it off. And, 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 and he was passionately concerned with the people of God. And then he says, on top of that, you know, then God allowed this thorn in my flesh. And three times I'm like, God, please, just take it away. I I don't want to deal with this anymore. And God's like, no. I like it that you're wounded. I like it that you're crippled by this. I'll tell you why. Because, Paul, when you know that you're weak... You depend on me. When you think you've got this, you will run with it straight into a wall. And I would rather have you weak and dependent than prideful and independent. So then Paul says the same thing that he's saying here. You ready for this? He says, Therefore I rejoice in my weaknesses. I rejoice in infirmities in beatings, in imprisonments. I rejoice in all of it because when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, after Jim read that, we're sitting there and we're kind of like, okay, waiting for him to teach or exposit in some way. And he just takes his Bible and he closes it up and he goes, Well, welcome to the ministry, boys. I had no idea how true that would be. To serve Jesus is a joy. There's tons of rejoicing. But it's not always easy. It's not always pleasant. Now, obviously, not everything we do as Christians results in our suffering. Paul in particular, though, had a specific calling as it related to his suffering. In Acts 9, the the author of this letter, Paul, is on his way to to Damascus. At that point, he's named Saul. He changes his his name later. And as he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus encounters him. It's one of the, the more famous stories of the Bible. Jesus meets him on that road and blinds him. And when he encounters Jesus, Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul responds by saying, well, um, I'm blind. I can't see who's there. Who are you? Obviously, you have authority. Who are you, Lord? The sentence that comes next was like a straight uppercut to Paul's chin. 
Because when he responds, when Jesus responds with the answer, it's going to take everything that Paul knows and it's going to turn it upside down. It's going to upend it. He says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine that moment? Why is Paul there? Paul is there because he thinks he's helping God out. He's not just a vicious person that's out to torture people randomly. He's got a target group. And the, the motivating factor for him to be out there is that he thinks that he needs to defend God. And so he's doing so by persecuting Christians. Now he's on this road. He gets struck with blindness. There's a glowing figure standing in front of him with a voice that no doubt has authority. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In other words, I take it pretty personal what you're doing. Now in that moment, first of all, fear, right? Yeah, like, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> Second of all, how did I miss this? When the Lord says to him, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, Paul's entire view of the world gets upended. He loses his sight, and for three days, all he can do is sit and think. And all he can think about is how did I miss this? In his mind, he is revisiting every scripture he can think of relating to the Messiah. Every assumption he has made about God, every mistake he has made in fighting against God while thinking he was on the right team. And after he sits with this for a few days, finally God sends a guy named Ananias to give him his sight back and to tell him the plans that God has for him. And then Ananias comes to him and he tells him in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, he says this, Go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Paul's calling to suffer for the sake of the gospel is unique in that God specifically told Paul he was going to go through a lot of suffering. Now, I can't help but wonder how many times that calling, that that specific message to Paul was a help to him. I mean, it's in seasons of suffering that we have a tendency to question everything. We question whether or not we're doing things right, whether or not God cares about us, or, or whether God is in control. But Paul had the ability to look back to what God had already spoken into his life and to know that no matter how crazy life was getting, that Jesus told him it would go down like this. And now, as he writes this letter to the church at Colossae, a church that he's never met, he's sitting in a Roman prison. Now, the, this is not a comfortable place. I mean, most of the Roman prisons were, they're, they're, they were water vats in the ground. They had bars on the top, and the soldiers would walk over the top of them. They'd just drop you down in a, in a well, essentially. And it was a big enough cistern or well 
that, you know, you could fit a few guys in there and you wander around. Matter of fact, the sewer for the city ran right alongside of the jail cell. So he's smelling feces buried in a hole, looking up the skirts of Roman soldiers. I can't imagine it was super pleasant. And yet he says, he's got all this spare time to think. I'm going to write a letter to the Colossians. I don't want to tell them about my particular situation. What do I want them to know? I'm so stoked to be here. I'm so blessed to be a part of this. It's amazing to me that God would use me in this way. As he writes this, the questions come from his critics. If you're doing God's will, don't you think it would be much easier? And Paul has an answer. My suffering only continues to prove God's love for his church. He's willing to waste my life for the sake of all of you. How magnificent is his love. He's willing to call me and equip me and draw me into situations that will bring the gospel no matter the cost. For you. Because, man, my suffering only proves God's love for his church. I think this might be why when Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, it doesn't sound so crazy. He knew that his suffering wasn't meaningless. He knew that it was a part of God's plan for him. He knew that suffering meant that things were happening according to what Jesus had planned and that life was not spinning out of control. It meant that his suffering was in the same pattern of the one who had suffered for his sake. And because Jesus had suffered so extensively for Paul, Paul determined that it was only consistent to be willing to suffer for the people that Jesus loves and desires to save. You see... Another measure of how much you love something is the length to which you are willing to go to suffer for that thing. Moms, you know, don't you, what it takes. Even set aside the whole childbirthing thing, that's its own traumatic and painful experience. Raising kids, isn't that work? Aren't there moments where you're just like, I am so exhausted. But I, I got to cook this meal. But I got to wash these dishes. But I got to do this laundry. Why? Because I love these guys. I just, I got to keep putting one foot in front of the other because this is what it takes to love them. This is what it takes. And if, I, if it means I have to stay up late hours and not sleep, and if it means I worry all the time, and if it means that I'm just micromanaging little people who are destined to get a major bump on their head, then, then that's the, what it takes. Because when you love something, you do whatever it takes. So i got a question for you. How uncomfortable are you willing to be for Jesus' sake? How uncomfortable are you willing to be? Are you, are you willing to step into the mess of other people's lives? 
care about them, love them? What if it takes a long time? What if they never change? Can you love them through that? How uncomfortable are you willing to be for the sake of others? You open your home to them? Will you, you care about what's happening in somebody else's world other than your own? Paul sets this example for us in thinking beyond the comfort of his own shell, his own life, and going, there is a bigger purpose. God does not exist for my glory, for my fulfillment. I exist for his. (laughs) Paul lays for us an example of living like Jesus. His logic goes like this. If Christ has suffered so much for my sake, is there anything that he could ask of me that I would not rejoice to endure? He's done everything for me. Is there anything that he could ask of me that I wouldn't just be like, yes, thank you for giving me an opportunity to give back to you in some way. Take a beating? Okay, glad to. You took my sin. You took my shame. Okay, go to prison? Doesn't matter. I'd love to do it. I can write letters from there. It's hard to get some peace and quiet. Tell me what you want. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. You've done so much for me. I would gladly endure it all. So we see in that Paul's example in gospel ministry. But second of all, we see Paul's explanation of the gospel mystery. Now let's think back to Paul's question when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. How did I miss this? As Paul thought about the ministry of the Messiah and all that would be accomplished through the reign of God's Messiah, there are huge things that were previously hidden from Paul before he met Jesus. These gaps in his, in his logic or in his insight into prophecy were mysterious to him. He might have thought to himself, well, I know the scriptures forwards and backwards. I know the prophecies forwards and backwards. What did I miss? How did I miss that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, there's so many writings about the Messiah. How could I possibly have missed this? I encountered him on the road. It's him. He's the one. How did I miss it? Now, he refers to this gap in his understanding and the understanding of his contemporaries as the mystery. Let's read it for ourselves in verse uh, 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, some scholars have described this mystery, this gap, as the peaks and valleys of the prophecies. It's as if they were standing on a mountaintop, the prophets, and they're they're looking over lots of continuous mountains and valleys, right? And all they can see is the peaks coming up everywhere. What they cannot see is what's on the other side of those peaks, what's down in the valley in the shadow of the mountain. They can't see that. Each mountaintop is blocking their view of the valleys that are in their shadow. 
So what was hidden in the valley? What was, what's the mystery that's back there? What's the thing that, that Paul couldn't see? Well, for one, it is the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom or people. This was hard even for the disciples to see. I mean, if you think about it, you go back to Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit falls, right? And people have, you know, their heads light on fire and then they start speaking in unknown languages and, you know, a big revival breaks out, 3,000 people get saved. Boom, instant megachurch there in Jerusalem. Okay, that's Acts chapter 2. It takes till Acts chapter 15 before they can even come to a consensus as to whether or not God can save people outside of the house of Israel. 15 chapters. They, they, they are, they're wrestling with it too. They're like, I, we're not quite sure. How open is this? How big is this? What is God's plan? How is he reconciling the world unto himself? And what does that mean? So here is what this means for the Colossians. It means that the Colossians' ethnicity did not exclude them or disqualify them from God's promises and plan. On the contrary, God allowed them to share in the inheritance of the saints. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God was always a part of God's plan of salvation. Matter of fact, if you want to do a really cool study sometime, do a study on all the places where it talks about the Gentiles in the Old Testament. It will blow your mind how many times God repeats himself and talks about being a light unto the Gentiles and how he will call the people uh, who are not a people unto himself, how he's going to continue to grab the whole world and bring it unto himself. It's all throughout, but they just they couldn't see it. They were focused on Israel. That's all they could see. Now, the mystery of the church, however, does not mean that, the, that Gentile salvation and blessing were unforeseen before Christ. There was lots of people who saw that. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. That's a great passage where he sees the Gentiles coming in. The mystery was not that the Gentiles would be saved, but how they could be fellow heirs on the same level with the Jews, with no middle wall of partition between them. In the Old Testament, Gentiles who believed and became a part of Judaism were still considered a part of um, the congregation or God's people. But there were limitations. There were walls of separation. They could only go so far into the temple. They could only get so close to God. They had to be kept at a distance because they weren't fully God's people. They were like second-class citizens. But here, under Jesus, under the Messiah, there's a special union in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor slave. This special union in which there is neither Jew nor Greek was non-existent before Christ died and the Spirit descended to baptize all believers into this new body. So he explains to us the mystery. Thirdly, he explains to us our experience in the gospel personally. Verse 26, or 27, excuse me. To them God chose to make known... How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, what's the glory of this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? It means another aspect of this mystery is that the Messiah was not just going to be a king ruling from Jerusalem, that he would live in you. That his kingdom wasn't just about like from this river to this river. 
that his kingdom was about possessing people, owning them, being in them, fellowshipping with them, I and them, and them and me. And Paul displaces the rule or the presence of the Messiah from a throne in Jerusalem to in you. This is something the prophets did not see coming, though they described it often in detail in passages like the New Covenant passages, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So how does Paul mean Christ in you? Well, he means it, first of all, the indwe- by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is our personal connection with Christ through his indwelling presence in every believer, but also through the corporate body of Christ. This is our communal connection with Jesus through the church, where I get to see different aspects of who Jesus is through the different giftings and callings and the ways that he has shaped another person. And I get a more well-rounded picture of the whole character of Jesus through the whole body of Christ. It's beautiful. Not only that, but he says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now check this out. This is, this is so fantastic. What does he mean by that? The hope of glory. It means because Jesus has been raised from the dead and because he's living now inside of you, it's like living in you is this tangible evidence of everything else that's coming on the other side of the gospel. New heaven, new earth, redeemed world, no sin, resurrection from the dead, no sin nature in ourselves, presence of God, down with man, fully known, fully loved, the whole package. Okay? And he's saying that hope is in us by Christ, by the indwelling presence of Jesus in us. Because Christ rose, you will rise. Because Christ reigns, you will reign. Because Christ beat sin, you will beat sin. Because Christ escaped hell on our behalf, we no longer have to face it. And because Christ raised from the dead, our mortal bodies will not stay dead, even if we perish. We will be raised from the dead and united with Christ. We have a lasting hope. Okay, if if you've been tuned out, maybe I yelled too much or I don't know. Come back to me for just a moment. It's the most important piece of today that I want you to grab a hold of, okay? Let's imagine you're in an ancient city and... um, there's a battle that's going on. And this battle determines whether or not you're going to be a slave and whether or not you're going to be sent off to Babylon or whatever, right? And it's, this battle is 40 miles away from the city. You can't see it. There's no Twitter. There's no Instagram. What you are waiting for is a messenger, a singular messenger. And so you're on the walls of the city and everybody's waiting. Are we going to be slaves? Are we, are, are we going to die? What's going to happen? They're all in, and they're, they're looking out over the horizon and they see in the, in the horizon a, a, a small puff of dust as one man is just beating feet across the desert. Boom, boom. He's running. His feet are just bloody. He's ran 40 miles. He comes running up through the gates. He gets to the gets to the gates. We open up. Okay, okay, come on inside. Come on inside. Shut the gates behind him. Okay, what's the news? What's the news? He's like, the battle. Water. You're like, come on, man. Tell us the battle. Oh, that was, that was so long. 
please, just tell us you are on the edge of your seat because what he says, the news that he brings determines your freedom or your slavery, your death or your life. Finally, gasping, he says, guys, the battle, the battle is won. The battle is won. We're free. We're free. And the whole city erupts in joyous celebration. Can you imagine that moment? Think about that. Guys, that is what Jesus has done for us. That is the hope of glory. You see, this message, the gospel that comes to us, gives us a hope of future glory. We're like the people in the city going, will we raise from the dead? Will we have eternal life? What will happen? How will this work? And then comes the messenger and his feet are bloodied from the battle and from the message being brought to us. And he says, the battle is won. You're free. You're mine. The battle is won. You see, this is our experience in the gospel personally. We have the indwelling Christ. And because Christ is present in us, the one whose feet were bloodied on our behalf, how beautiful those feet are, the one who brings to us the good news, because of that, we have a hope of everything that comes after that. It's a hope of glory. Lastly, but certainly not least, Paul goes on to say this. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's the last thing that we need to take note of. The expectation of the gospel is maturity. Isn't this what Jesus said? John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides or stays connected to me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's, here's what he's saying. Listen, if Christ is in you, you have this hope of glory, but even presently through your connection with Christ, he's going to be growing you, maturing you, changing you. As we hang in there with Jesus, as we stay connected to him, our lives change. Sam and the gang are going to come up now and lead us in worship, and it's a communion Sunday. We have an opportunity to celebrate what Christ has purchased for us when we come to this table. And as we do that, as we, as we meditate on what Jesus has done and in the process of worship, as you come and you grab that piece of bread and you, you grab the, the cup of juice and you remember his body that was sacrificed on your behalf and his blood that was shed to cleanse you from sin and to make you righteous and holy, would you think about this for a minute? I got one final encouragement for you. Everything that you are going through in life right now has meaning. Everything that you face has purpose. Because of Christ in you and the hope of the glory that's coming, listen, 
a cup of cold water to a child. Moms, that's you guys. God rewards for that. That's, there's, there's, a, 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 there's a reward for that in the coming hope of the glory of all that God has planned to redeem the world. Visiting those who are sick, those of you who are keeping in contact with those in prison and loving them in that place, in their brokenness and in their fallenness. Those of you who care for those around you, those of you who've been suffering and you go, man, it's been so hard this season. It's been so difficult. I just, I feel so worn out. I want you to know God is keeping track of those things. And the hope of coming glory is that not an ounce of your pain, not an ounce of your suffering will be wasted. So come to the table today. Come and celebrate all that God has done. Come and celebrate that Christ is in you. You've been reconciled to be with Him through the blood of His cross. Come and celebrate that your future is secure and that you've got hope of all the glory that is coming.